Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. Just to make sure that you're aware, following the conversation, we do a segment with my dear friend, my childhood pal, buddy and sister, Ambassador Shabazz, titled How We Move, so stick around for that. Coming of age born smack in the middle of the baby boomer generation, which encompasses the years 1946 to 1964, means growing up in America in the years and decades of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Those decades occurred during and following the civil rights movement. The children of that time lived through a country in turmoil. Aside from the battle against the disenfranchisement of African-Americans, war and assassinations wreaked havoc on the collective social consciousness. While culture evolved as culture does, despite the growing pains along the way. My guest today, Tony Ann Johnson, is an award-winning writer and author. Her latest work, titled Light Skin Gone to Waste, features stories that, quote, delve into how racist ideas burrow into black and white families and infect them for generations. This linked collection is inspired by Johnson's experience growing up in a middle-class black family living in a white working class town in mid-century upstate New York, end quote. The stories begin in 1962 amid the tumult of desegregation while detailing the divides between class, race, gender, and their effect on this family. I related to this excellent book on multiple levels. Having grown up as an only child, I also appreciated the glimpse light skin gone to waste provided into the minds and lived experiences of young girls at the same time observing the behavior of boys and men from a female perspective. Tony Ann's meticulous development of these characters and her recall of cultural touchstones are rich and spot on. Tony Ann Johnson was awarded the 2021 Flannery O'Connor Award for Light Skin Gone to Waste. She's the author of the novel Remedy for Broken Angel, which was nominated for an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work. Johnson's novella Home Going won Accents Publishing's inaugural novella contest. She is the two-time winner of the Humanitas Prize for her screenplays Ruby Bridges and Crown Heights. Her essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Coachella Review, Hunger Mountain, Kalaloo, and many other publications. I have been aware of Tony Ann and admire her work for some time, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome her to the show today. Tony Ann Johnson, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we kick things off with our short order questions. So let me ask you, what are you listening to musically or otherwise? What's in your earbuds these days? The first new album I bought in a long time was Samara Joy, a new jazz vocalist, a young new jazz vocalist. But what I listen to almost every day is audiobooks. So I'm listening to a couple of audiobooks. Chris L. Terry's Black Card and a writer named Omar El Akkad, What Strange Paradise. Oh, some good ones there. Samara, what was the name of the uh, artist? Samara Joy. 
She's amazing. She's amazing. Samara Joy. She's on tour now. Okay. That's a new one. Excellent. I'm, I'm going to check that out. I found out about her on Instagram. There you go. Social media is of some value. <laughs> All right. How about your morning beverage? What's the first thing that you drink in the morning? This is long, Brad, and I knew you were going to ask this question and <laughs> I'm embarrassed, but it's coffee, but I put a scoop of gelatin and a scoop of collagen and a teaspoon of olive oil in my first cup of coffee and then a second one, all of those, plus a, a tablespoon of diatomaceous earth, which has silica in it. And so all of these are designed for anti-aging. So I'm sure it sounds ridiculous, but... It worked for me, so I keep doing it <laughs> every day. It does not day. sound ridiculous. Plus, <laughs> I get the benefit of seeing your youthful appearance, so I can testify that, that it's working. <laughs> and full disclosure, Tony Ann, my wife and I were putting collagen in our coffee for a little while, and we fell off. But now you reminded me, I'm going to have to pick that back up. You have to be consistent with it. So I've been doing it for years now. Um, for years, mm. every day without fail. And I use both collagen and gelatin. The gelatin is a little thicker and it doesn't dissolve as easily. So there's a whole process. You have to bloom the gelatin first with cold water because if you pour your coffee onto the gelatin, you'll just get these lumps of hard protein. <laughs> it's awful. So, yeah. But I'll teach it to you if you're interested. <laughs> I'll teach you my Thank technique. You. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to have to have a little sidebar on that one. <laughs> I, I want to take you up on that. All right. So tell me your favorite place to write. My bed. <laughs> it's because my office chair has become unbearable for me. So my back and my hips start to hurt if I sit at a chair. So I partly do a standing desk where I am now. My computer's on my standing desk. So sometimes I write there, but the most pleasure <laughs> is at just lying in bed, reclining with my laptop on my lap. Okay. All right. How about your favorite LA restaurant of the moment? My favorite restaurant of the moment, there's actually two, Cabra, which is uh, Stephanie Izzard's restaurant in downtown LA. I went there for my birthday in July and I just thought the flavors were just amazing. Like every bite of all the different things, like the flavors just popped and it was so interesting. It was delicious. I loved it. But I also went to another restaurant called Spartina on Melrose. That's an Italian place. And that place was amazing, too. I loved everything I tasted there. So I can't really choose between the two. <laughs> That's okay. That's the two good ones. I'm not familiar with either one. Oh, look up Stephanie Izzard. She won one of the chef shows. And she has a few restaurants. Okay. She might have one in Miami. Tony Ann Johnson with the restaurant <laughs> tips. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. So let's jump in here. First of all, congratulations on the well-deserved accolades for your latest work. I should mention Light Skin Gone to Waste, released on October 15th by the University of Georgia Press and in select bookstores and available for purchase via many online platforms, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Debound. And we also encourage people to support their, their local bookstores. And by the way, before we get too far, I've heard that Essawan is no longer going to be around. Did you see that? Yeah, my Remedy for a Broken Angel launched at SOAN, and I called James to ask if I could do this launch, and he said they weren't doing live events anymore. But then I saw him two weeks ago at an event. He was selling books for South Los Angeles Noir that just launched a couple of weekends ago. He was there, and he was like, oh, yeah, this is my last event. It's my last event. So I don't know. Maybe he'll be popping up, but it wasn't at the store. 
But oh my God, that's such a huge loss for us in LA. Esawan was a touchstone for our community. And I loved having my book launch there. I had to beg James to do it because he didn't want it. He didn't like my book cover. He didn't want to do it. But then I sold out all the books and the place was packed. We were out the door. So it was a great event and I will miss them a lot. Yeah, that's a tough one. I actually yeah. cried when I heard it is that they one. were closing. So what, is there anything close to that? I know Book Soup, is Book Soup still on Sunset? Book Soup, Book Soup is around. There's a new place called The Village in Culver City. Skylight Books is a wonderful indie bookstore. That's on the east side on North Vermont. That's where my launch is going to be. I think the last bookstore is still in downtown LA, but they were closed during the height of the pandemic. I'm not sure if they've reopened, but there's lots of local bookstores that we can support, but there's nothing like Esawan. It's a historic place. Like so many wonderful people have come through there. I don't know of anything that can compare to that, but, but those other places are great and I will continue to support all of the local bookstores. Yeah. Just love the book. We're going to talk about it quite a bit. But are you at the point where you can take a deep breath and do a little end zone dance due to the early response or are sales the next mountain to climb? You would think that I should be concerned about sales, but I've never sold a ton of books and I wasn't paid a huge advance that I have to earn out. So if the book does well, it'll be fantastic. But if it doesn't sell that many copies, I haven't failed. I'm sure I'll sell at least the prize money. <laughs> That's what they gave me, but it wasn't a lot of money. I think the fear about sales comes if they've paid you $100,000 and your book doesn't sell that many copies, then you've not made back your advance. And so that's a negative experience to have in publishing, but it's all good for me now. It's all gravy. Whatever sells, it's great. So I'm, I guess I should be concerned about sales and I'm going to do my best to sell as many copies as I can, but this is a small press book. It's not a large press and small press books don't typically do as well as large press books, but I'm doing all I can to make it competitive with the other things out there. But there's some things I can't do. I can't send myself on a cross-country book tour, although I am sending myself to New York and to New Jersey, but I'm only going to places where I know a lot of people. I will get to Detroit because I have a friend who's invited me to come there and I will get to Seattle because I'm on an AWP panel. The AWP is, the, is a big conference that happens every year. It's the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, and they do panels and seminars and things. And I'll be on a panel there that's about short story collections, linked short story collections. So I'll get around to a bunch of different cities and I will do my best. But I don't feel relaxed. I don't feel like the early response has been something that's going to make me feel that every review is going to be great. I hope the reviews are good, but some may not be. I had an experience back in the day. I did a play in Poughkeepsie and people of color really embraced the play and really liked it. And the reviewer from the Poughkeepsie newspaper was very put off by it because she felt that it was negative towards white people. And some people may feel that way about this book. <laughs> so I can't control any of that. I can only say what I have to say and express my truth as authentically as possible. I feel that I did that and that's the best that I can do. And I hope it does well.
I love that answer. I love that you're not bound by the pressure of finance. I'm so glad to hear that, Tony Ann, and I'm glad that you're not bound by the, the sales dilemma. I related when you were talking about how you were reviewed. I felt that way in the restaurant world for a long time where there was a lack of black food writers and cultural experience is best analyzed, I think, by someone from that culture. And the lack of black food writers to me just did not allow a fuller story to be told about black restaurateurs, black restaurants, black food. And I wonder if you feel that way. Maybe the writing world is a little bit more advanced than the restaurant world has been, but you obviously encountered that in Poughkeepsie. But have you found that to be the case with uh, some of your work and how it's viewed? I haven't been that widely reviewed. So with my fiction, but as a playwright, yeah, I felt Honestly, I felt like some of the white reviews were condescending. I felt that I was in some ways underestimated, not really taken seriously. So I got a kind of snarky review of my play in the LA Times. This was years ago, though. I'm going back to 1994. But then there were other white writers who did get it and who reviewed it well. So think that it's necessarily in my case, in the case of my work, that white reviewers are across the board not going to get it. I don't think that's true. I think that a lot of white people have responded favorably to the book. I think I'm just responding in this way because I've experienced what I experienced. I've experienced it not being embraced, not because of the quality of the work, but because of the ideas, because the ideas made people defensive. And in that play, there was nothing about it that was anti-white. The character was biracial and she was just talking about her experience, but it was perceived in that area as anti-white. And that area that I'm talking about is very conservative, tends to be Republican, voted for Trump. <laughs> like that's the kind of area it is. So there's a tendency to view anything that might not show that community in a positive light with skepticism and at arm's length and maybe to push back a little bit, even without having really understood or considered the ideas in the piece. It's just look at a sentence from the script, judge the whole thing by what a character says when that might not be reflective of the entire piece. So... I think that there's a lot of people, there's a lot of my friends, I have plenty of white writer friends who have read it and did like it and get it. Sure. The book is fictional, but it's based on your experiences growing up in upstate New York in a predominantly white working class town. Can you set up light skin gone to waste in your own words and talk a bit about the main characters? There's certainly a lot going on with the Arringtons in upstate New York. Can we, can you tell us about that? The book starts with Phil and Velma Arrington moving to our house that they rent when they first get there. Phil is highly educated. He has a PhD in psychology from Yeshiva and he's going there. He's moving to that area because he's recently gotten a job at Orange County Medical Health Clinic. I think that's what it was called. And he needs a place closer because they've been living in the Bronx. And before they move, the night before they move, Somebody calls them and lets them know they're not going to be welcome there. They go anyway. Velma is, is a very tough personality, and she is not going to let anybody tell her where she can or can't go. 
So she insists on going and they go and they do experience some negative things. The developer cuts their house off from the main water main. So they have no water when they get there, but people help them. And they, despite the negative stuff that they experience, like protests at the entrance to the, the development, they stay. And then it skips over a story that previously existed when they buy their next house. And the next story picks up with them in their new house that they own. And that brings in the character Maddie, who's their daughter. And Phil has a daughter, Livia, from a previous marriage. Livia lives in the Bronx and she just visits. So she doesn't actually live with the family full time. Maddie basically is raised as an only child because her sister is 10 years older and they don't grow up together. We proceed from there. One of the main threads of the book is Phil's propensity to chase white women in the town, which drives Velma insane. And she takes her anger out on Maddie, who is the only one there. Another experience they have is they hire a white maid who has some mental illness problems. She had a nervous breakdown, but because of Phil's experience as a psychologist, Velma isn't intimidated to hire a white maid who has suffered a nervous breakdown because she doesn't believe that will impede her ability to do a good job as a housekeeper. So she hires her and they have a relationship. Maddie struggles to fit in. She does have friends, but she always feels marginalized. She can never be the it girl. She can never be the girl that guys want to date. Nobody wants to kiss her. And then when somebody does, she's afraid of what the consequences will be. Like, is the same thing going to happen that happened to her when she was a little girl, which was she had a white male best friend who then rejected her when he found out she was black. At that age, Maddie was very light and he wasn't quite clear about race and didn't understand that she was different. But once he realizes she's different, he kicks her to the curb and she's very hurt by that. So... That's the gist of the collection. I'm going to delve into a few of the, uh, the storylines there and some of the characters, but uh, I found myself very touched by the maid character in particular, her pursuit of a love life and her long lost love coming back into her life at a certain point. I don't want to give it away, but that was a very tender part of the book. I really enjoyed that. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, thank you. So what I want to do, Tony Ann, is I want to read a few comments that have been printed about light skin gone to waste and get your reaction, if you don't mind, on the other side of that. The first one will be Ravi Howard, who is also an author, and he said, quote, in these stories, the characters come into focus vividly as seen through the eyes of loved ones and the glare of the judgmental. Tony Ann Johnson's visual sharpness and evocative language create the many layers that give these stories texture. The dialogue resonates as these characters navigate moments of peace, hatred, and love. Johnson's writing strikes the right chords with a skillful touch that mixes humor, tension, and grace. End quote. And I found myself hearing these little cultural touchstones like the expression, the joint. We used to say that, oh, that's the joint. <laughs> that, yeah, that place is the joint. But it was a good thing. And I don't often see that. Some of my first and most classic sneakers were the were pro kids. You talk about the hostess cupcakes and Nabisco cupcakes, just some period things that, that really moved me. But uh, what's your reaction to uh, what Robbie said? And dive into a bit about your ability to describe the characters, as he says, with, quote, such sharpness and evocative language. Well, Ravi was actually one of my mentors at Callaloo's writing workshop. 
So some of that he may have taught me, actually. <laughs> he was very instrumental in the story that you liked about Velva and Gertie, the white maid. My ability to write with evocative language, that's come over time. I have been writing since I was 19. <laughs> so I started as a playwright, then I was a screenwriter. I developed my style of dialogue came out of my work as an actor. So I was trained as an actress and I was trained in improvisation. And so that's how I learned to write dialogue. I'm playing all the characters and the sharpness is, it, that's another thing that I just learned studying writing. So I went to Antioch University, Los Angeles, where I got an MFA in creative writing. And over the course of the program, a lot of these things were pointed out to me. I was taught how to write visually, but different from screenwriting. So writing visually through prose is very different than writing screen directions. And that was really something that I had to learn. I think I'm still developing a prose style, but I was very fortunate in that a lot of these elements of what makes fiction work were shared with me. So I wasn't just stumbling through the dark, trying to figure it out on my own. My professors would show us work by different writers and we could see like how another writer did it. So it's by reading and practicing. And hopefully I've gotten better from my first book to this book. In the first draft of my first book, I got a lot of criticism about my prose style. My style had a lot of double adjectives. I relied on double adjectives to express things and it was pointed out to me that was turning into a pattern. And if you stop relying on that and go deeper into the image, get deeper into what are we actually seeing? What are all the elements of what we're seeing? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? To focus a little bit deeper, don't take the easy way and just say it's this and that, <laughs> move on. So I spend a little more time maybe on the page and try to really open up what the scene is. What am I looking at? Who's there? What does it feel like? What's the tension? All those things. I think I was just lucky to have the ability to, to learn some of those things. Yeah. And you do that so well. Sometimes you read writers who just put in extra words and you feel like it's wordy beyond necessity. But I never felt like that in reading any of this book. It just all felt very descriptive and it puts you right where you were. I really enjoyed that aspect. Well done. The next one I want to read is from another author, Susan Strait. She says, quote, Light Skin Gone to Waste is a stellar debut with a chorale of voices that I won't forget. Souls navigating the hatred and hope in the 1960s in an America that everyone should read about to remember and also think about who this nation is right now. Most impressive are the characters in this book, fathers and wives and daughters, so stunning in their particularities and the way they look at the old world and new. In the watchful way they see each other and the women in this book, their absolute ferocity to be known and loved made me think about them for days, end quote. In the intro, I spoke about the civil rights movement and while laws were enacted, in people's minds and behavior was another story. I especially like the line in Susan's comments where she says, navigating the hatred and hope in the 1960s in an America that everyone should read about to remember and also think about who the nation is right now. So Tony Ann, your thoughts on her comments and factor in, if you don't mind, your perspective on who the nation is right now. I know that's a big question, but take a stab at it. <laughs> when I started writing this book, it was long before Trump ran for office. So at the time, I think I was writing to gain a perspective on it and in some ways to 
release myself from it and to have a little bit of peace and distance from some of the things that I experienced that I will never get over them completely. Just thinking about some of the things that happened to me still hurt me to this day. I think that they always will, but I do have enough distance now that I feel like I can be more fair in the way that I write about those things, that I can show the humanity of the other characters as well as the characters based on me and my family. At least I hope so. (laughs) So it wasn't apparent to me how bad things were. I wasn't surprised that they were, but I was, I think I was writing during the Obama years and I knew that there were people who hated Obama, that there were people who hated Black people, the Tea Party rose. And I was aware of those things, but I was still enjoying, from my perspective, the kind of halcyon time of, we have a Black president. This is amazing. I was so happy. I love seeing Michelle and Barack on TV. And it was just a good time for me. So that's where I was when I first started working on this. Then 2016 happened. And then I realized, wow, these people are still here. They're still the same hatred and ignorance that existed when I was a little girl. My friends have been talking about things that their children are experiencing now. One friend has a son who's very dark-skinned, and his friends tease him for his dark skin. This is in 2022, and it just blows my mind that we're still dealing with this same stuff, and I'm exhausted by it. I just wish that it wasn't that way, and I'm still writing, and I'm still grappling with these ideas but I don't know that my work will have any impact in that sphere with people who are racist. Maybe it will, but it's unlikely that somebody who's racist is going to read my book anyway. So I don't know how I can benefit that situation. I feel like my story is preaching to the choir. The people who are going to read my book are already thinking similarly to me. So I don't know. I am sad about where things are now. I want to be hopeful and I look for reasons to be hopeful wherever I can find them. But it does make me sad and disappointed that I think people can experience the same kind of stuff now that they experienced when my parents moved to that town in 1962. There's still a rejection of Black people. I hope I answered your question. I'm not sure. (laughs) Is there something more? You want me to get out? <laughs> no, absolutely. You, you did. And I think you expressed what a lot of us feel. And I find myself watching the news, reading the papers that I read, and I'm saying, this is a great editorial, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind because everybody that's reading this newspaper already thinks this way. Exactly. And it's hard to be empathetic with some of the stuff that you hear from the other side. And without empathy, it's hard to have a conversation with people that you disagree with. I think we're stuck in a moment like that. And it's it's a challenging one for democracy. And we'll see what happens. The last one of these I want to read is from Roxane Gay, the best-selling author of Bad Feminist. And I believe she was also your editor. Roxanne says, quote, Tony Ann Johnson's Light Skin Gone to Waste is one of the most engrossing short story collections I've read in recent memory. These interconnected stories about a black family living in a predominantly white suburb of New York City are impeccably written, incisive, and often infuriating and unforgettable. 
With a deaf eye for a detail, crisp writing, and an uncanny understanding of human frailties, Tony Ann Johnson has created an endlessly interesting American family portrait, end quote. The uncanny understanding of human frailties really resonated with me and made me reflect on my parents, who I'm the product of an interracial marriage. Their struggles, Tony, and as much as I didn't want to see them, were unavoidable. Those moments in the book shed light for me on how a young woman at Velma's age at that time experienced the world. And as a man, it was just a fresh perspective. My mother and my father fought a lot. And I heard these violent confrontations. And I wished, like Maddie wished, that she did not have to witness that. But I'm curious about your thoughts about Roxanne and her contribution here and what she had to say. Oh, I was just so excited. She also selected the book for the Flannery O'Connor Award. So that was a huge deal for me. I'm a big fan of hers and admire. I'm a little intimidated by her. So taking notes from her was very intimidating. <laughs> I didn't always want to take the notes and sometimes I didn't. But every time I decided not to take a note, I was like, how can you not take Roxanne Gay's note? I didn't take notes that I felt just weren't right for what I was trying to do. But I did take a number of her notes and they were brilliant notes, I think, and they forced me to go deeper. For example, the end of the story with Phil, the story is called Wings Made of Rocks, and Phil and his mother are in Maddie's hospital room having a conversation, and the conversation deals with colorism. And Phil's mother rejected, from Phil's point of view, rejected him because he was the lighter-skinned son. She had two sons. One was brown, dark brown, and one was light. And Phil always felt like she didn't love him. There was another reason. He was also a difficult birth. But the colorism element comes up, and I petered out the story. I was really focused on mirroring the opening and the ending. So I really wanted the story to end with this sort of feeling of the father in the room, Phil's father, who passed away when Phil was 10. My focus was on that, on, on feeling the spirit of the father at the end of that story. It was just like hellbent on getting that to be the ending. And she was like, this isn't the ending. This, this conversation's not over. You have to go deeper. You can't wrap it up that quickly. It's just not a quick conversation. She was right. And I went back and I did a lot of work. And oh my God, that was the hardest section of the book to work on is that conversation because it's based on a conversation that in real life didn't happen. I wish it happened. I'm not either of those people, but I had to embody each of those people and try to understand their point of view and try to come to some kind of closure. And it was really, really hard. If I had more time, I might have kept working on that, but I had a deadline and so I just had to finish it. But those were the kind of really smart notes that she gave where she just saw where I was just making it too easy for myself. And she was like, no, it's not that easy. Another time was the scene in Africa, in Ivory Coast, where Phil and Velma leave Maddie in the hotel room with the babysitter. Now, in real life, my parents bounced. They were like, we got somewhere to go. Peace out. Roxanne didn't believe that. She was like, they would have to be the worst parents in the world. <laughs> I don't believe this. I had to find a way to make it seem like it was a struggle to leave her and to just to make them look better. It wasn't that my parents were intentionally bad parents. It was they were raised in a culture where you just left the kids with the babysitter. You didn't worry about what happened to them. If somebody 
the hotel thought this was an acceptable person. They trusted that. But the consequences for me were dire. But yeah, Roxanne just was like, no, that's not acceptable. So I had to work harder on that. There's another one, but I don't think I want to belabor this. <laughs> but those are a couple of examples. No, how astute and good for you that I can only imagine not taking someone like Roxanne Gay's notes and the challenge that might have been for you, but she brought the best out of you. So at this point, and I want to come back to colorism, but before I do, I wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind reading a passage from your book that I thought would really resonate with our audience. It starts on page 150 and the title of the book suggests that perhaps the writer of the book thinks that having lighter skin is an advantage, but that's not how the title was conceived. If you don't mind, you read that passage and then we'll come okay. back and talk. I'll set it up just a little. What happens right before this is Maddie is considering getting her hair cut and her cousin Judy, who's black and lives in a black neighborhood, tells her not to get her hair cut because no guys will like her. She tells her she should just keep it in a short ponytail. And we'll pick up there. What did it matter? No guys in Monroe liked her anyway. Not even Zeke Odom, the cute new black guy in town whose attention Maddie had tried and failed to get. She was sick of trying to make her hair look like the girls in Monroe. And her mother was sick of hearing her complain that it didn't. Velma drove Maddie 50 miles all the way down to her childhood hairdresser in Harlem, fussing the whole time about how she didn't want to hear it if Maddie didn't like it. It's your decision and I'm not going to be responsible, Velma said. Maddie got it cut into a curly afro. She thought it looked good. They came home and her father hated it. He took her back into the city, not to his old neighborhood in the Bronx, though. No, they went to Manhattan, to the salon at Henri Bendel's, where a snooty stylist shook his head at her ghetto cut, recut it, and charged three times what her mom's hairdresser had. Maddie's hair was so short now you could barely tell if it was curly or nappy. Among Black people, this was not considered a good thing. Yesterday, when Aunt Syl, Susie's mom, saw Maddie, she stared at her head and went, sucking her teeth in that Jamaican way of hers. Yeah, she said, you have barely a touch of the tar brush, but now your light skin's going to waste. Hence the title. <laughs> so... Thank you for that. I love the voices are real. So yeah, let's talk about the color issue and the idea of quote, good hair and the view that there are advantages to being quote, light skin. As I mentioned, I'm the product of an African-American father and an Italian mother. And while I know I'm considered light skin, my childhood was spent almost exclusively around black folks. My mom's family disowned her when she married my dad in the fifties. So the only family that I knew was black, as were most, uh, if not all of my parents and my friends. I ran into problems as a result when my being mixed, quote, made me a target to be picked on. As a result, I felt I had something to prove and I fell in with the wrong crowd. Thankfully, I got shipped off to boarding school in New Hampshire. And my issue was being perceived as, quote, less black because my mom wasn't black and I had light skin and light eyes. But I personally, Tony, I never bought into the idea of light versus dark. Clearly though, colorism is real and even today is a dicey subject. So contextualize, if you will, Syl's reaction and please shed some insight into why you chose this to be the title of the book. Okay, that's a few questions. So 
if I forget something, like come back. But I chose this title because I felt like it actually hit at other themes in the book. So the literal meaning of it is how it was said to Maddie is in that scene. So she's literally saying, you have this light skin, but you've ruined it like by chopping off all your hair. Now you just look like anybody else. There's nothing special about you anymore. So that's one thing. But then Phil, Phil's character being light-skinned, I think was most likely a big advantage to him going to Yeshiva University. I don't know for sure, but he may have even passed. My father himself was very light-skinned. He fit in with other people, white people. Yeshiva was a Jewish university. Some people might not have known what he was. So I think that may have benefited him. And certainly my parents being very fair skin and moving to this white community. And they were also very attractive. I think that helped them be embraced by people in the community because they didn't look that different. But I think what the book ends up showing is that this didn't necessarily make their lives better in the long run. Marriage fell apart because Phil is a philanderer. And Velma felt very insulted and rejected and hurt. And of course, Maddie's watching all of this. So the self-esteem of their child is compromised because of this. And even though Maddie was able to compete academically and do as well as white kids, she always feels like she can't ever be in the in crowd or be like the popular girl. She doesn't She's never going to ascend in this social situation the way that kids want to. Kids want to be popular. They want to be accepted. She's never going to be completely accepted because she's not white. And so the only solution she really has is to leave and go somewhere else. So I felt like saying light skin gone to waste is another way to articulate that even. Okay, Maddie was light skinned. So what? What did what advantage that that did that really give her? In this situation, she still got called the N-word. She still didn't have that much success socially, especially with boys. She didn't feel that good about herself in that situation. So to me, that's another way to look at light skin gone to waste. Velma is a beautiful woman, light skin, attractive. Her husband still cheated on her. So what advantage was that for her? Velma also is biracial and she was abandoned by her birth parents. Father was Russian. Her mother was Jamaican. They didn't keep her. Um, how did her light skinness help her? So I, I was just thinking that the title looked at multiple ways that we could examine this idea of light skin privilege. And I'm not saying that there is no such thing as light skin privilege because I think that there is. But I think in this family, I don't think it did what I would call give them the greatest experience, a greater experience than they would have had necessarily if they had stayed in a middle-class Black community. I think that could have been a great experience. I think that Phil and Velma might disagree, but from Maddie's point of view, I think that would have been great. What would be wrong with just being in a Black community? I think that's what she thinks that she would have preferred. So that's what I mean by that. What am I missing? Yeah, I don't think you're missing anything. And I self-related. We grew up in a Black community as an interracial family. And the difference I think I felt from that side was 
being looked at as mixed and not wanting to be looked at as mixed. I wanted to be black and feeling a little left out because of that. So I had to go out of the way to prove my blackness. Like in Maddie's case, she was the black kid who clearly didn't feel like she fit in that community and thought that she would be better off in a black community. Let me say this, though. Maddie does go to a black community to visit cousins. And in that community, she is not rejected, but they definitely let her know that she's not like them. She doesn't talk like them. She doesn't dance like them. She's not as cool. And she really knows that. So, yeah, I think I went the opposite way when I left. When I left Monroe, I went through an almost militant phase. So sometime during the 80s, I was wearing kufis and I joined every Black organization that I could. I was angry. I wouldn't say that I was anti-white, but I was just angry at everybody. I was angry at my parents for where they raised me. I was angry at racism. I was just angry and I just was not at peace. I think I remained in some ways that same militant. I would still wear a kufi now. I got rid of the ones that I have, but I kind of wish I had it now. Like I still like an Afrocentric look, so I would still embrace that. It's not like I, I got over it, but I think I blended it into myself a little more. Like then it was more like a costume I was putting on. I was like, look, I'm black. Like I'm going to show you. I didn't want people to mistake me for white because that had happened. And I really hated that. That's why I had my hair cut when I was a little girl. I didn't want there to be any confusion. <laughs> I guess I took that even further when I left Monroe. I can relate to that. I made a comment on a Reggie Hudlin post and a picture came up next to it and somebody commented, what do you know as a white guy? I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that was yeah, the worst thing that. I could have heard. Thankfully, Re Reggie stood up for me. Like, you know, Brad's black, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I would not want to be mistaken. Were you ever concerned, Tony Ann, that the title might potentially turn off some readers that thought that maybe you were making that statement? I should have been, but maybe I was just not thinking about it. I always loved the title. It was the title of one of the stories that I wrote and it was that story was published. I knew that it was a provocative title, but in thinking about who's likely to read my books, it's mostly my friends and in my circle. They know that if I'm going to use a title like that, it's probably not as simple as somebody might think. So I would hope that it would just make them curious. I think a lot of people don't know what it means. I've had white people like just be confused about it. And somebody white actually said to me, oh, I was surprised that came from a black person. I would have thought that a white person would say that. That shocked me because I was like, no, I can't imagine a white person coming up with that phrase. It seems to me so so much from the Black community that that would surprise me if a white person even thought of that. Because in my experience, even with close friends, the idea of light skin, dark skin sort of confuses them or it confused some of my friends. They don't really understand the difference or why one person would be treated differently than another. I don't know. <laughs> but people think all kinds of things. You just you can only put something out there. You can't really control what they think or how they think about it. I hope it doesn't turn people off because I want people to read the book. But if it does, too late now. <laughs> and I wasn't suggesting that. I think it's a, it's a great cover and it's a great title. And I think the more they hear about your book, I think they're going to rush to pick it up. 
But I wanted to talk about the validation that Maddie sought from boys. She felt unseen and as a result, uncertain about her attractiveness coming of age in a town that was almost entirely white, as were her fellow classmates. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the effect that this had on her and how, as we see in the closing chapter, she gains her sense of self-confidence. Yeah. So in high school, Maddie does feel insecure. What's not in the book that I hope to write about is she does go through a period of modeling. So she has had some validation, not in Monroe necessarily, but outside of Monroe, that she's attractive and she thinks that she's okay looking, but she is still not a desired girl in that environment. When we get to the last story that it's jumped in time, but we do see that she has a lot more confidence, that she is able to look back at the experience that she had and be okay and even have some ability to if not forgive, at least recognize what she did love about her friend who was unkind to her and who really hurt her. She's not any longer carrying her severe anger towards that person. Um, That story has been analyzed and people question whether or not she really forgives. And I'm not even sure. I don't think so. I don't think that Maddie has forgiven this kid. So the last story brings back the kid from an early story. And that kid is Tobias. He's not named in the last story, but she's going back, remembering that the rift that occurred when he realized that she wasn't white and then later started calling her the N-word in childhood and making fun of her appearance, making fun of her large butt and all her hair and all kinds of things. But what Maddie does is she can go back to those raw feelings in childhood when they were just friends, before race came into it, before they knew what the difference between them was. There was a bond. There was a genuine love there. And when she sees Tobias, when they're in their 20s, she can see it in him. So he smiles at her and he says her name in a way that's, I remember you, you were my first best friend. We were cool. And she sees that at the time she's not ready to forgive or even connect. She's just, yeah, whatever, (laughs) she leaves. But then she recognizes another 20 years later, oh, yeah, you really did like me. And all that other stuff, Maybe I can compartmentalize it and just remember we really were friends as babies before babies don't know any different. It's like the world that comes in that tells you, oh, these people are not like those people and you shouldn't like these people. That's what ruins relationships. But just humanity is just what it is. People can care about each other and be close without that other nonsense that comes in to destroy a friendship. I think that's how I hoped at the time that I felt about the whole experience is that I could recognize there were a lot of negative things, but everything wasn't negative. There were people there that were friends, real friends, and I'm still really friends with some of the people that I grew up with. So it's complicated. It's not that easy like to just pin one definitive emotion on it. There's a lot of things that one feels after an experience like that. Do you think that time heals all wounds? Do you believe in that? No. (laughs) 
I don't think that time <laughs> heals all wounds. I'm not saying that I'm healed or that wound that happened doesn't still hurt me. It does. And I can see the complexity in it. And I can see the humanity in that little boy and the humanity in young me or young Maddie and have a perspective that this is life. These are people. People are flawed. I can have that perspective now where I might not have been able to have that perspective 20 years earlier or 20 years earlier than that. I think time gives you perspective, but I don't believe that time heals everything completely. I think when you've had a wound in childhood, like that can make me cry even to this day. If I really go back and think about what it felt like to be that little girl and to be othered in that situation and be the only person and there's nobody else on my side, it still hurts. It's still painful, but I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm not carrying it with me. It's not ruining my life, but I'm not going to pretend that it was okay. That wasn't okay, but I'm okay. Do you think time heals all wounds? <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think that we all have to do our best to try to accept whatever has happened in our lives as learning experiences and all that. But there's no doubt that certain things stick with you. And as you were talking about compartmentalizing feelings, I don't know about you, of all the times that you've been told, oh, how great you are and you're wonderful here and you do this great. I can remember the times when someone said something to me that stung far more vividly than I can remember the many compliments and pats on the back along the way. So yeah, it does get to be challenging, but as the Maddie character does do, years later, 89, Hoboken, she starts to talk about a different kind of acceptance and recognition for what that was. And I'm thinking about the Tobias character as a young kid, and he just wants to make sure that his friends don't isolate him for befriending Maddie, exactly. regardless of her feelings. He just doesn't want to be the guy on the outs, you know? Yeah, and I understand that. I can understand that. It still hurt my feelings, but kids are mean. Kids are awful <laughs> sometimes. And sometimes they're great, but I've experienced both. Let's talk about Philip for a minute, Maddie's dad, and his somewhat in rampant infidelity, but mostly white women. All white women, Brad. Okay, all white <laughs> And that was who was in the neighborhood. But do you think that there was any, was he acting out any resentment towards some of the racism that he felt? Was it, was there some way of getting even or was it just a matter of convenience that these were the women that were attracted to him and that were around? I don't think it was just a matter of convenience because my dad operated both in that community and in New York City. He always had an office in New York City all the time. So he had access to other people. It wasn't just that. And I can only speculate, but there's a part of me that thinks that, and I'm not sure if this was conscious on his part, but there's a part of me that thinks that this was part of what he wanted to do. He wanted to live in a white community. He wanted to live better than the people there. He wanted to sleep with their wives. He wanted to access all the things that he could about white life that he thought made life worth living. And I think in a way, because some of these women were married, I think in a way it was an FU to racists. I think it was like, yeah, I'll show you. I'm going to have all this stuff. Like he bought this house, Phil buys this house in the 
mid to late 70s that has a pool and a tennis court. And he has all these parties there. The parties aren't in the book, but he does bring people there to show off. This is how successful I am. And I have a white mistress. I do think that there was something going on, something that I, my father is deceased, so I can't ask him and I'm not sure that he would admit it. But I do think there was some kind of acting out of some sort of plan yeah. that did involve some sort of anger and resentment and I'll show you. But as I said, I can only speculate. I don't know. I know we talked about it a little bit, but I do want to go back because Tony, and I just felt that last, and I know you call them stories and I refer to them as chapters, but last story was just so incredibly beautifully written. I mean, it, I read it twice. It was really just so special. And without giving anything away about the book, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what's going on here and share some of your thought process that went into that section of the book, that story. That was actually, that story came out more easily than others. There was a kind of rhythm to it that I I fell into as I was writing it. So it was almost like it led me to write it in that way. It has the sound almost of a poem. The story, when it's read out loud, it has a, yeah, just a rhythm. I guess that would be the best way to say it. So part of that was guiding it. Can I tell you what inspired that story? Please. I don't know if you remember this, but I wrote the movie Ruby Bridges. And there was an event that happened on set. I wasn't there, but this story was shared to me. Story was, there was a little boy who played a white boy named Jimmy, who has to say in a scene to the little girl who played Ruby, the, these are the actors, my mother told me I can't play with you because you're an N-word, but he actually has to say the word. The little actor refused to say it. He said, I can't say, that's mean. And they kept trying to tell him, but no, it's just for the movie. Like she, it won't hurt her feelings. It's okay. It's just for the movie. Finally, he does it. He says, I, I can't play with you because you're an N-word. And then immediately after they called cut, he leapt into her lap, like hugged her and started crying and said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. And Ruby says, the actress Chaz Monet playing Ruby says, it's okay because it's just pretend. And the executive on the movie, Ricka Fisher, called me and told me this story. And I was just in tears at the care, the level of care that this little boy had for another child. And that is what led me to the first story and the second story. So I was wishing, I was like, oh my God, I wish that my character, that the kid who Tobias is based on, had said he was sorry to me and cared that hurt my feelings because it did. So this story, the time travel story, was me at that age, like around when that happened, going back and trying to almost imagine that when I saw him, that was his apology. I was trying to resolve it in that story, but it was definitely inspired by that event on the set of Ruby Bridges. I just have never forgotten that. And it, it just moved me so much. And it made me so happy. Like when I was saying earlier that I have hope, that maybe there is hope for our nation, like that little boy who cared so much about what that actress would feel. That's the kind of hope I'm talking about. Like 
just care about other people, just care about their feelings. That could save us. Hopefully those of us who care will win out in the end. But yeah, that was it. That was what inspired those stories. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. I, I'd never heard that story before. That was fantastic. Tony, you grew up on the the East Coast. When did you relocate to L.A.? 1992. And what prompted that move? I came out to L.A. because I really wanted to act. So I was an actress in New York. I went to NYU and got a BFA in drama from NYU. And I came out here and I was so broke. I could barely get myself to audition. So my car was always breaking down and I was struggling, but what I was able to do was write. So I had this play. In fact, you came to see this play in 1994. Gramercy Park is closed to the public. So I brought that play with me and I was continuing to tinker with that. And I was sending that out. And because the acting thing was such a struggle at the time, I just would, when I had time, I would just be home writing. So writing became what I was able to do without help from anybody or support from anybody. I could just do that. And that play ended up getting into the hands of a literary agent who launched my screenwriting career. I came out because I wanted to act and I ended up being a screenwriter. So that's how that happened. <laughs> it was fine. I was happy. I was happy to just make a living. So screenwriting was much more lucrative for me than the acting had been. Uh-huh. I'm curious, given your track record of success and your reputation, is the path to selling or having your work make it to the screen get easier for you? Or is it still a struggle getting things over the finish line or getting that person that needs to say yes, yes? Oh, it's still a struggle. I did the screenplay version of Gramercy Park is Closed to the Public, and I've been trying to get that made since 1997. <laughs> That's why I'm writing books. Because even if nobody, even if a big press doesn't buy my book, I can find somebody to publish it. I can still get my work out there, but it's definitely not as lucrative as screenwriting. I did well enough in the screenwriting world that I have enough money. I will have a pension and I can actually take this time and not make as much money and do my work, do the work that I really want to do because I just have set my life up in such a way that my bills aren't that high. And so I'm just writing what I want to write. And I don't want to have to do what other people tell me to do. That's what I didn't really like about my screenwriting career. There were a few projects that I really liked, but sometimes I would be hired on things and I would just, I'd just be like, really? I have to do that? And my name's going on it? I didn't want to execute other people's ideas as if I wasn't me. Because sometimes I was being asked to write stuff that didn't seem like a Black person's point of view. I would never write that, but that was my job. I was just like, oh, I just can't do this anymore. So that's when I went back to, to get my MFA. I just couldn't handle it anymore. But yeah, getting one's work to the screen has been a challenge for me. And it may be a challenge I never overcome. Who knows? I hope that something that I've written will make it to the screen. But if it doesn't, I have my books. <laughs> so people can still read my work. Also too, the perception that I have from outside of the industry is you look at Isaray, you look at so many of the names that, you know, are making, get in the trades these days and get products made or projects made compared to when you first began. Do you think there's more opportunity and interest in projects and writing generated by African-Americans or is that just an outsider's perception? I'm an outsider from that field. 
now too, but I do think that there is more uh, of an interest, but I think it's still hard. I think that during the whole George Floyd protest period, companies were saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to implement all these things. I think that happened and then now it's falling off. I think The Woman King is an amazing project. It was not written by a Black writer, as far as I know. Her name is Dana Stevens. I don't believe that she's Black. If she is, then I will stand corrected. But as far as I know, Dana Stevens is white. And so it's wonderful that movie got made. I'm a huge fan of Gina Prince-Blythewood, and I love the movie, and I support it, and I think everybody should go see it. I'm not sure that it's done anything for Black writers. So I think it's all still hard. And the other thing that's hard, and I say this from an outsider's perspective, but I am close to people who are in that field. Sometimes it's really a struggle just in those writer's rooms to have a Black perspective, because if you're not the boss, if you're not the showrunner, if you're not the producer, you're still having to answer to somebody else who may not actually get what you're trying to do. Yeah, it kind of makes my next point for me but fairness and we all have the streaming services hulu netflix amazon prime i have the hardest time finding something of quality to watch and black films as much as i want to support the writing just doesn't is just not there tony and then when i read something like light skin gone to waste with real characters fully developed that you can totally embrace and say i remember that i know that's real to me that resonates i don't see that so what, how do we get Hollywood to understand that the writer is the important place to start? How does that happen? Or is this just me and I'm missing something? I wish I knew the answer to that. I will say that I have been pitching my types of stories since I entered that business in 1994. And I was constantly told, oh, we're not interested in that. I wanted to do a story about Jack and Jill, about teenagers in Jack and Jill. And these people didn't know what Jack and Jill was, but I, and I was not in Jack and Jill. I would have killed to have been part of Jack and Jill, but the complexity that I felt like I could have brought to a project like that would have been similar to my book. Like I knew how to do that, but nobody was interested. And I pitched things that had this level of complexity in other ways, and I could never interest anybody about it. It wasn't until I was willing to just sit home and write it without getting paid that I was able to complete a book. Everybody doesn't have that luxury. People, Black writers need to pay their bills. They need to pay their mortgage. They need to send their kids to school. People need to make a living. And so they have to take jobs that sometimes don't support that kind of work because it's just hard to get that out there. It would have been really difficult for me 10, 15 years ago to go in and pitch a story about this handsome Black psychologist who moves to a white town and starts having sex with white men's wives. I think they would have kicked me out the door. <laughs> but I just don't want to wait around for that anymore. I don't want to wait for anybody's approval. So I just write what I want to write and put it out there and get it published however I can. I am a hustler. This book went out like to agents and didn't sell. It went out in a different form. It had been developed by an agent. It went out as a novel. And when you said chapters, it was then in chapters. It was sent out as a novel, but it was twice as long. Every editor passed. So I took the book back. I stripped it down. I just wasn't giving up. It failed. It went out and it failed. And then I was able to salvage that and send it out and sell it myself by winning a contest. 
I'll just do whatever I have to do to get my work published. And sometimes it gets attention like this one. And sometimes it doesn't. My previous book, Homegoing, was a novella. Same family. It's, it was in the original book. I had to cut out that story. I had to cut out another story that took place when Maddie was in college. I cut out all the stories from the sister's point of view. They all came out. I published Homegoing separately because I won a contest. I sent it in to a novella contest. I won. And this small publisher out of Kentucky published the book. Sometimes it's hit or miss. So I hope that this book will lead people to buy that one too. <laughs> I admire your tenacity and please keep doing what you're doing. And winding down here, I wanted to ask you, and not trying to date you, but it seems to me that stories <laughs> about the Black baby boomer generation are just few and far between. It just feels like there's a huge gap between what we're seeing now and some of the subject matter and the time periods that you touched on. We're the beneficiaries of the civil rights movement. We did have opportunities that previous generations fought for, and we were the beneficiaries of that. But there just does not seem to be a lot of content that explores the romances and the travel and in a real way that uh, can find out there. Is that something that you would agree with or how do you feel? I do. That's why I wrote my book because it didn't exist. <laughs> I didn't see that experience. And I felt if I didn't write it and I pass away, what evidence that existed would there be? Like who would know that there was a black family who traveled the world, who skied in Europe and who lived in a nice house in a white neighborhood? Who would know that existed? And so I felt like I wanted to leave that. I wanted to write that and I wanted people to know this is a part of history. And that's why I made it as real as possible and used the dates and used the real names of places like Walton Lake Estates and Playtogs and all those references, Grant's department store. Those places all existed. I guess in a way you could say it's historical autobiographical fiction. But I definitely wanted to create something that I was not seeing. And frankly, I think your family would be a great story to tell. Like your experience is you were well known in New York. Like everybody knew who you were and your dad and your parents' businesses. And that story has never been told. That's a great story. You should become a producer and produce yours and mine. <laughs> I think that would be a good idea. A little sidebar. Yeah, there's a whole generation of us in New York who knew your family and went to the cellar. And I went to Georgia's. We, everybody knows your life experience and your family's accomplishments and your personal accomplishments in this business. And I've never seen a story about someone like you. Does it exist? <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen a story about a, a Black restaurateur. Thank you for saying that's really kind. And you can hire me. I'll do your story. I was just going to say, I know who I'm coming to for a writer. <laughs> so thank you for all of that. That's really yeah. sweet to say. Lastly, before I let you go, and I know you got a lot of travel coming up, but what's next for you, Tony Ann Johnson? Believe it or not, remember I told you I wrote a screenplay based on the play Gramercy Park is Close to the Public. I couldn't get the screenplay made, so I've written a novel. It's not ready yet, but that's something I want to go out with. And also the material that I stripped out from the original version of Light Skin Gone to Waste. I need to write some more, but I want to work on that and, and hopefully put out another story collection with a novella. I have an adaptation of the story you liked with Gertie and Velma. I'm doing that as a one-woman show. So I did a version of it at a small theater in Northern California in Carmel at the Cherry Center for the Arts. The director 
Robin McKee and I are trying to get that up as a production up there. That's what I would like to do next year, hopefully. You are so talented. Thank you. The book is Light Skin Gone to Waste. My guest is Tony Ann Johnson. And it's just been such a pleasure, Tony, watching you through the years and admiring your work. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to do this and to chat with you. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. So welcome, everyone, to the segment we call How We Move with my sister, dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz, Tony Ann Johnson. She touched on some stuff that you and I talk about quite a bit. And that's that generational gap that we don't feel represented. I love that she recognized that too, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. I know you met her through the years. What did you take away from the conversation? Well, the truth is it's not that we don't feel represented. We are not represented. It is a demographic. It's an era. It's a slice that is not part of the storytelling at all because those that are younger have no clue who we are, what these narratives are. And while she's a young person, she says, if I leave here, who's going to know this story? So it is a, a incumbent upon us, as we have talked about both personally and on air, we have to do the chronicling of these stories. I have to go through it in, in different ways just because my father may become a topical story that people reference, but then they wrap stuff around the narrative or the being that's contrived. And you want to say, no, there's, there are real people that knew what happened on that Sunday. There's a rhythm on the first Sunday, right? There's something that happens on that block on a Wednesday night. You can't just fill it in with random things. And that these are metronomic characteristics of our lives that really inform this next generation. They don't realize that there's a root of rhythm, of cultural rhythms that define. And while how you can have someone like Tony Ann Johnson chronicle it, reference it even in context to your family, which is true. So this is not like a pat on the back. This is just fact of an era of time, of stories told, stories lived. And if we don't put them on whatever, I love her. <laughs> you use the word tenacity, but she's just absolutely unapologetic in her due process, not waiting, not stopping, not pausing. Because if we do that, it won't get told. It won't get bought. We all know that. We've submitted our various original pieces over the decades, mind you. And if we're not ready to just sit down and do it ourselves and tell our stories and presume not governed by the dollar, but by the authenticity of the narratives, that there is an audience waiting. Authenticity of the narrative. Yeah. We were raised by that. That's what enables us to find an accord. You and I will get to talk about the new day and the thoughts and who's responding thereof and where do we fit in it until we have to get ourselves back to the authenticity of our narratives. We're not to forsake who we are by root or by origin or by training or investment by our respective parents and one another's parents, neighborhood parents. The folks that watched you when your parents weren't around, we had that. We're the last of that, it seems. So that when the next generation, like our children, when I'm up in their gizzard, they're wondering, oh, what audacity do I have to be up in their gizzard? Because I come from that. I'm checking. I'm watching. I see you. I know you've grown. I know you're 30. I know you think that means something. But I, I'm still in the wings, making sure that I'm here. 
What I love about this story is going to be a, it's a comp complex audience. You were asking the question. She's writing from the inside out, which is just very pure. But who is the listener? Who is the audience? And how ready is America to deal with this topic? And that she flips it. It's not about the benefits thereof. It's about the complexities thereof. And it doesn't have a whine. It's not whining. It's not, it doesn't have any of those things. It's just that at the end of the day, that which is of African root is of African root. And it's going to have its uh, complexities along the spectrum of who we are. But with that, I think I've never been a person that had to prove Blackness because Blackness, as I learned it, even if others didn't approve or didn't or wanted to qualify me, I just never let, let that in. It was just such a definitive glory in being of African descent. That's just pure for me. And that you don't get to dilute or shift what that is. You don't get to rewrite what that is. You don't get to determine, is it enough? It is powerful in and of itself, along with all the other blends and contributions, socially, geographically, genetically, that may enter that composite. It does not dissipate for me in my rearing that which is of African in its origin. So it's a beautiful beginning for me when I do hear about others that have um, been imposed upon. It breaks my heart. It hurts me. But it's because we're in the United States. You can be in other locations. You can be planted in the Caribbean. And while people may have a spectrum issue or reference, you get to still wear your nationality without a hyphen it. And if you're in North Africa or other places, you get to wear your definition without a hyphen it. People may know that there's a root origin or a contribution to that self, but it doesn't take away unless your attitude. So attitude speaks to a lot, right? How you walk, how you treat people. For her, she would have loved to have been in Jack and Jill. My mother worked hard for us to get into Jack and Jill, and it was not a compliment to me in the 60s. It was because I was my father's child and I was an, a global kid. So I didn't know my Black self in context to the American reconstruction of what it was to be Black. I knew myself as part of the, the majority composite, if that makes sense. So when I would hear stories like she talked about, I was baffled when people made references to, I learned about the paper bag test at Jack and Jill. I went home to a chocolate, beautiful, stunning, queenly mother. I didn't even understand. I had no warning, no preparation from the social side of that. It was not a part of the orientation of my household. I learned it. I stumbled into it. I am part of the American construct. You start to understand, wow, part of it has nothing to do with you. It really is the person who's making the statement, how they see themselves. There was a pressure to fit in. And I don't know what that feels like. It would be nice to be part of the collective, but if I have to leave my soul self to join the posse, it just never worked. You know, what else touched me about what she said, and I think about this in terms of who chronicles the period that we hold so, so dear, and the real life realities that kick in, paying rent, paying mortgages, kids to school, and having to work, that takes up the time where a writer like Tony Ann has been able to carve out 
or earning enough money to allow her to write the way she wants to write and about what she wants to write about. But without the chronicling and the naming of those department stores and those snack cakes and those sneakers that we wore and how Afro picks were, and we lose that. That really resonated with me that someone has got to be able to have the time to do that, to pen that, to write that. You're right. I would say I was an early writer as well. And if we're waiting for someone else to approve the validity of the work, it won't get done. So what is your piggy bank? What are you setting aside? What are your hours after work from four to 10 Saturday and Sunday? I'm creating a writer's retreat in January for all of these mainly young people that's relative in various genres of authorship who just feel shut down. They just feel like the natural voice that they want to share has no interest. And it's because even if you get it done, even if you have it in bulk, who's going to distribute it? Such a chain, right? And so you have to be ready to do it yourself or find a network. Fortunately, nowadays, you can actually do that, right? You may not get an advance, but if you have the pause for four months of salary or income that's saved or set aside and may have that kind of discipline, it might be something that you can start and move into motion. And the writer's workshop that you're working on, where is that taking place? Writer's retreat is going to be in Central America because I, want, I need to get people up and out. For me, I realize the Mad Hatter life that we live here in the U.S. will redefine your natural flow and self. So if I can do it in a mountain in Morocco, if I could do it in Central America, if I could do it somewhere where I know that people can enjoy the disconnect yet feel as if they're in Congress with the environment, just so they can hear their head, hear their voice, and not think about what someone else thinks, feels. The critique that seeps into our mindset, our psyche, is so disruptive, and it will disqualify an authentic voice. Wow. Ambassador Shabazz, that is how we move. Thank you so much, and lovely to see you as always. You too, my dear, and I am grateful. I wish I had the opportunity to read Tony Ann Johnson's book beforehand. I'm very curious. I'd love to have a, just a one-on-one powwow. She's ideal for slumber party conversation. <laughs> just because her mind moves, her colors are there, her insight, her intrigue. And thank you for having her on the Corner Table Talk. Thank you, and I will see you soon. Real soon.